0: Mark, Chapter Six. Give you guys some time to get there. I want to say that we have a lot to go through, but I think that just depends on my willingness to not talk too much. Keep you guys here. Last week, I looked at the sermon. it took me I think I preached for twenty six minutes. I like felt bad for that. Is that like you know what I mean? Like a sub thirty minute people are smiling like yeah you, I, I like to talk, so um but no, this is something, as you guys know, we just got out of the, uh, our, our Second Corinthians series. And I ask for you guys' prayers as well, even for me uh, going through this. I told my wife before service, I said, I feel anxious for some reason today. Like, the message isn't anything difficult. Like, I've, I've studied, up on it, or studied up on it, I'm prepared and all that stuff. I just said, for some reason, I just feel anxious. So, I just ask that you guys just be in prayer for me in regards to just my deliverance of it. Once again, I just want it to be received in a way that it's meant to be received. Um, But I think it's something that that definitely is is a message that we need to be reminded of, I think, especially with the times that we're in today. Um, And this is just a message of reminding us about how God just truly is our portion and how Christ takes care of us. But kind of unpacking that a little bit more, and what does that mean when we say that He takes care of us? I know Brandon gave a sermon a couple weeks ago about you know the daily bread, and I loved what he said. He's like, this isn't about Jesus just being in the bagel making business. You know, this he, we know that He could give us wonder bread whenever He wanted to do so. Um, did she kick you out? She oh heard. wow! There we're you go. Gonna we're gonna let her try, um, Julianne. We're at Mark chapter six, by the way. Um, But I want to go through a a miracle here that we find in all four Gospels. It's actually the only miracle that Jesus performed that is actually in all four Gospels, and that is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. How many of you are familiar with this miracle? Okay. We're going to unpack Mark, but I am going to go back and forth between Mark and actually um, John's Gospel as well, because I think there's some significance here, and even the words that we read in these accounts because I think we can easily overlook some things that are being spoken about and said. And one of the things that jumped out to me when I was studying for this, and I was running my, my mouth to my wife, was, was is that we so easily can forget, and I love how Linda has brought this up to me, that these are actual accounts that have taken place. These are historical events. That have taken place. So We could even lose the identity of that if we don't really look at Scripture and unpack it in a way that we were actually, I believe, meant and called to do. And what we're going to see when we go through Mark's account here, and you guys will find out in, in Mark's writings that he kind of he's very emphatic on the action side of things. He doesn't give as much detail maybe as the other Gospels do. And what you'll find out is that Mark will start to talk about an account, and then he'll kind of abruptly stop in the middle of it and then throw another account in there and then finish the account that he started with speaking about. So there's kind of this confusion. I've heard some pastors refer to it as a Mark sandwich and how he relays and speaks about these accounts. So what we're seeing here in Mark's gospel is is that Jesus sends out the 12, and then we see John the Baptist get beheaded. And then the 12 come back to report what it is that they've learned when Jesus sent them out to perform these miracles, to to do these teachings and stuff like that. But I was talking to my wife, as I always do, I always give her kind of these pre-sermons, and I love it because she lets me know where I need to probably, you know, cut some of the fat off here and make sure that you don't use that word there and all that stuff because, you know, she's my wife and she's wise and beautiful and awesome. But, I love when we are reading this, you will see and read about the masses, right? These people that are there that are evident, right? We see 5,000 men. It's not holding into account the amount of women, the amount of children, but just simply 5,000 men. But we read in John's gospel that this is taking place close to the Passover. So we know, as we have seen and read about in the past and what we're even talking about in us participating in in a cedar meal, is that this would be a time where a lot of people would be journeying or or going to Jerusalem. So this was a part of one of three pilgrimages that people would take to Jerusalem. So we know that when Jesus is there, that all these people, as we will unpack and see, are coming and going. So looking at John's gospel, he even makes reference to the Passover meal. Mark, you'll see where Jesus says to tell the people to go sit on the grass. In John's gospel, he makes reference and say, tell people to go sit on the green grass. So, these little things that I read and I see, you try to pack together and put together with these other gospels, you actually see this event that's actually unfolding. All these people that are present because of the Passover meal. Right? Mark even, or the, the disciples even say to Jesus that we need to send the people out to the, to the surrounding towns to go get food because there's so many people here, right? He doesn't, they don't say send them to their homes because they're not in their homeland, they've journeyed to Jerusalem. But we'll read what Jesus says here to them, and Jesus tells them that you need to feed them. And then we'll read as well what the disciples do, which what we tend to do as well, where we kind of look and see what is, and we try to do all these calculations in our brain, not really understanding or knowing how we're going to make something happen or how we're going to make something work. But in actuality, all Jesus is asking us to do is just to trust in him. And I said it on our Wednesday night service and I told my wife this throughout the week as well, something that I heard a pastor say that really just hit my spirit and it's something that I want to speak to you guys especially with the church today and how we live and things that we see is the people that serve God the most, the ones that are the most committed are the ones that are just simply there and available. The ones that are just simply willing to serve. We can get so caught up in this gift mindset. We can get so caught up in this capability and this qualification mindset that those who tend to hinge on that, those who tend to be parked there, they're more flighty, and they kind of wait for the best scenarios and situations to serve God. When in actuality, guys, being a Christian, you just simply just need to be available. You need to be there. We've heard the saying before that that God doesn't call the qualified. What does he do? He qualifies the called. And we can struggle with this mindset. We do it so often where we don't think we're qualified enough to do this. Why would God use me to do that? We just simply have to be present and be willing to give God what it is that we do have, which we will see in this miracle of him feeding the 5,000. And if we have time, I am going to go into the part two where it speaks about Jesus walking on water and unpacking that. But we are going to start off here at verse 30 in Mark chapter 6. So once again, context here. Jesus sends out the 12. We know John the Baptist then gets beheaded. The 12 now are coming back to report to Jesus all the things that they've taught, all the things that they've experienced. They've performed these signs and wonders and these miracles. They've went out with this message that Jesus has said. So they're coming back to report what it is that they've, um, what they've learned and what they've, they've done. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, I want you guys to remember to think about the Passover, okay? because the Gospel of John speaks about this. You have a lot of people there. Think of of thousands beyond thousands of people. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I love that Jesus says this even to his disciples because something that I know that I've had to learn, my wife has had to learn that it's okay to rest. That in the midst of ministry, in the midst of the things that you're doing for Christ, it's okay to rest. It's okay to retreat, if you will, away from people. Verse 32, So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I want to stop there because this word compassion... Is one that we can so easily look at with our own eyes, and we can kind of put our own definition on it, right? We can just think of it to this in this kind of lukewarm manner. This word compassion in the New Testament, this translation is only used in reference to Jesus Christ. It is this deep-rooted sympathy and empathy and love for people. And I want you guys to even think about the times that we're in today. Sheep without a shepherd, people that are running around aimlessly in life, not knowing where to go, what to do, striving for every which thing. You guys are in Ecclesiastes. You guys will read and see how Solomon speaks about people chasing the wind, going after stuff that they can't grab. We live in a culture and a time today where this is our MO. This is the things that people do, trying to find gratification, satisfaction, pleasure, joy, and things that lead to nothing, lead to absolutely nothing. Jesus saw this in the masses. He saw these individuals, these people that were literally running around like a sheep without a shepherd, without some kind of governing, without some kind of comfort, and most importantly, without a sense of peace. We in here, all of us in here, know what that feeling's like. We as Christians, we now have the, the ability and the means of grace to say that we have a shepherd. That we have someone that'll walk with us, that will guide us throughout all of our days. But we see today, even today, especially today in our culture, that there are so many people out there living and wandering aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd. So I want you guys to think about that. When Jesus said this, that he sees these people... He felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do? He began teaching them many things. Teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. So I find it funny here that the disciples themselves actually tell Jesus this. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages buy themselves something to eat. Jesus' answer is a great one. Verse 37, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And I love this because this is what we do. We question Christ all the time. With what it is we have, if he tells us to go with what it is that we have, we can stop in our tracks and instantly calculate the cost, calculate the consequences, and literally convince ourselves out of doing it. By a show of hands, how many of you have done that before? I like when the little hands go up. It's not the big emphatic, it's just like the little digits go up. This is big. Jesus is telling them, you feed them. They go through, they calculate everything that they have. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five loaves, two fish. In John's gospel, I think it's awesome to to notice too that he actually makes reference to barley loaves. And barley loaves, if you guys knew anything about Jewish culture was actually seen as kind of the poorest of poor bread. It was like the bread you ate when you had no other bread to eat. It was even food or bread that you would give to animals as well. So, I mean, they weren't rocking like the multi-grain high dollar bread. This was the wonder bread, the stuff that's been sitting in the back shelf that we really don't have anything else to use but this. This is it. He goes on, he says, when they found out five and two fish, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So I want you guys to get that imagery. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of men who had, who had eaten was 5,000. Now remember, this isn't holding into account the women or the children, but something that I want to kind of connect here, guys, and this is what I love to do when I preach. I told my wife I love to dig in the Scriptures because it's so important that we see these fulfillments and God's Word speaking out to us because we can so easily miss it if we don't dig the way that we're called to dig. You guys remember that I said that in Mark's gospel, he, he speaks about the disciples being sent out, John the Baptist being beheaded, and then the disciples coming back to teach and talk to Jesus what it is that they learned. We know that John the Baptist was referred to as the Elijah, if you will, of his time. Okay, Jesus was seen more as like the Elisha if you were to look at the miracle side of things. I want you guys to turn your Bibles with me back to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. And I love hearing pages turn because I know a lot of people are probably like, I don't even remember the last time I was in 2 Kings. But we could miss this, right? And, and John was so prophetic in the things that he spoke about and said Jesus, even when you read through John's gospel, um, John speaks about how, or Jesus speaks about and mentions to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that if you believed in what Moses said, you would believe and know me. Because we read in Deuteronomy that Moses spoke about how one of their own would come forth to redeem and to save their people. Well, Jesus knows that that person that Moses spoke about was him. And for a long time that they would refer to and even think of Jesus as merely a prophet. But here in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, we see an account here with Elisha, and it says, and once again, this is a, a kind of a fulfillment or a typology of what we're going to see take place here with Jesus feeding the five thousand. It says in 2 Kings 4 forty two A man came from Baal, Shalashah, bringing the man of God twenty loaves of what kind of bread? Barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of God. So we see this miracle take place thousands of years ago, and we see this fulfillment and this typology and this grander miracle that Jesus just performed with feeding the 5,000. But there's something important here that we have to realize and recognize as we go into the next miracle or the next thing that Jesus does in walking on water, that even though these individuals saw this miracle take place, in John's Gospel, you will see Jesus express this concern that the people start to look at Jesus as this King that's going to come forth to literally liberate the Jewish people. And this was a concern of Christ because Jesus was not just an earthly king, he was the king of kings. He wasn't an earthly liberator to just free the Jews. We know that he came to bring salvation to all mankind. So there is this hardness of heart that takes place here with the Jewish people. They saw this miracle take place. They experienced it. But they were not getting the message that Jesus was trying to send in this miracle. So Jesus, in the midst of his concern, in the midst of him seeing the people's hearts, like they, they were wanting Jesus, it says in John's gospel, to literally become king by force. Jesus does something that he does three times throughout his earthly ministry. And that is, he breaks away in solitude to go pray. We know he does it the first time when it comes to selecting the twelve. He does it in this next time here that we're going to go into and read when it comes to him walking on water. How many of you know what the third time was? Garden of Gethsemane. We know that when Jesus broke away to pray, when he strayed away, that there was something pressing on his heart, like a crisis So we know that in him performing this miracle that the people that witnessed it, the people that saw it, had a hardness of hearts, which he'll go into saying here when he walks on water. But I'm going to have you guys, we're going to continue on here because it's important to package these things together. In verse 45 of Mark chapter 6, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. Now remember, he's seeing the crowds of people come. They're watching him perform this miracle. Yes, this is the king that we've been waiting for. This is the king that's going to take over Rome. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to liberate us from Roman oppression. Jesus was concerned. But we could even say that maybe even the disciples started to believe in such a thing. That even they were concerned, or even not concerned, but even maybe they thought that this was Jesus' purpose and what he was doing. So Jesus... Broke away. He was concerned. He had a crisis here that he was, he was trying to deal with. So he broke away to go pray, but it says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So I want you guys to envision this distressed Jesus. This Jesus that was just really concerned. Later that night, The boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. I told my wife this word straining. Once again, we read this in the Greek. This actually is making reference to the word torment. What a word, right? That they were actually tormented in the boat. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation where you literally feel like you're being tormented while you are riding somewhere? I don't know if any of you hate flying or anything like that, or maybe you've been on a boat that's experienced horrible weather, but this once again is the emphasis of what's going on with these disciples while they're in the boat. There's this torment that's going on with them as they're straining against the strong wind to get across this water. So once again, I want you guys to put yourselves there because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. I want you guys to listen to this. I said this to my wife and I love my wife because she looks at me and she's like, okay, got to chill out with the preaching, but I'm going (laughs) to preach to you guys right now. She likes my preaching, but there's times where I go a little bit too much. He was about to pass by them. How many of you guys have ever caught that? So you guys have the imagery, right? The disciples are in the water. They're tormented. They're rowing against the wind. Jesus sees them. Jesus does what only Jesus could do. I don't know how many of you have ever tried walking on water. If you've done it, come see me. Once again, I'd like to hear the story. It says that he was about to pass them by. Think about that. Why would Jesus, as he's walking on the water, he sees his disciples tormented and straining, that he's actually about to walk by them? Well, once again, we can go back to the Old Testament and start to see, and there's this this correlation here of Jesus and his divine nature and his divinity that we have to really stop and look at. I'm going to have you guys go to... First Kings, back to the Old Testament again. I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I'll just read it, but I want you guys to go. First Kings, we'll go chapter 19. So remember, you guys, I spoke about Elisha and Elijah and all that. But I want you guys to understand something here. There's this word here that, and I, I told my wife I would explain this word, and I, it's a word that I want you guys to write down if you have a pen and paper. It's called theophany. She just went, ugh. It's theophany. Okay? T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. That was too fast. T-H-E-O. Okay, do two letters at a time. T-H-E-O. <laughs> so, Theo. Then phony, P-H-A-N-Y. I'm not the only one. But... I know, and I'm explaining it. And I want you, there's a reason though for you guys to know this word because we see theophanies appearing throughout Scripture. And this is basically a word that just means when the invisible God makes himself visible to humankind. My wife could say, why didn't you just say that? Yep. One word. But that's... Exactly. It's one word. Thank you, Mariah. It's simple. When the invisible God makes himself visible to mankind, to humankind. Okay? So we see this once again. The disciples in the boat, straining, tormented, going against the wind. Jesus goes out on the water to pass them by. When we look at 1 Kings chapter 19, I'm going to start off here at verse 9. This is Elijah... Fleeing to Horeb, it says in verse 9, There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to what? Oh, Theophany, right? So we're going to continue on. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, guess what? A gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, pulled his cloak over his face, and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, Anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, and Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, I'm going to have you guys go back a couple more books to Exodus 33. Okay, because I want to connect this stuff with you guys. Remember, think of Theophany, guys, the burning bush, right? Theophany. Verse 12, we'll start out at in Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to do what? Pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no, no one may see me and live. So I wanted to just unpack that because I want you guys, when we read just this little phrase here in Mark chapter 6, Where Jesus sees the disciples straining. They're tormented. And the wind is against them. It says, Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. This is making a reference of that theophany, that correlation of Christ being God. Him being the glory of God, about to pass by his disciples. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought, He was a ghost, and they cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, one of the things too with this translation and this phrase, if you were to look at the original writing, it actually would say, Take courage, I am, I am. It would seem like Jesus was in a sense kind of stuttering when he said those words. But what he basically is just saying there in the translation in Greek is this goofy phrase, and I would write it down for you if I had my board and my marker, but it was egoimi. It's this Greek phrase. And egoimi, if you were to translate it back to the Hebrew, actually comes out to be this other word that we're very familiar with. It was a word, a holy word that the Jewish people would never speak or could speak. Because it was just simply letters. And that word was Yahweh. Egoimi was a Greek translation and narrative of the word Yahweh. So when Jesus is saying this, take courage, I am, I am, it was him even making reference to him being the holy God. So we see him passing in front or passing by the disciples as we read in the Old Testament that God would do in these theophanies. His glory would pass by. Jesus is doing that out here on the water. And then he's actually saying, take courage, egoimi. I am Yahweh. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the waves died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I just want to stop again right here, because I think that this is important to just unpack as well. Miracles, signs, and wonders are amazing. They're important. But guys, sin has a way of hardening hearts to where when Jesus Christ himself was performing these signs and wonders, guess what? People didn't get it. We read even in John's gospel that when Jesus is talking to the people about the the signs that he's performed, he's sitting there, he's saying, you're coming to me because you saw me do these things, but do you not know and understand that I am the true bread of life? And these people would still look at Jesus not getting it and they would just say, can you just simply give us more bread? Jesus is trying to let them know, no, no. I am the one that you need. I am the true bread. I am the one that if you partake in me, if you abide in me, you will have everything that you need for eternity. For eternity. And many of them still didn't get it. If you continue on in John's Gospel, a lot of people, because they saw this teaching too difficult, you know what these disciples did? They left. They walked away from Christ. If the Holy Spirit does not grab a hold of an individual's heart and soften that heart, sin will continue to callous the heart of people, regardless of the things that they see and witness. Jesus himself is standing here performing these miracles and these signs and wonders. He has just expressed himself as being God to his disciples because there was thousands of people that he performed this miracle to that just didn't get it. They didn't understand it. All they knew is they just wanted to keep getting their bread. But he is trying to emphasize here that he's not a genie, that he's not this worldly liberator to come and bring comfort to the Jews, that he is this divine eternal king that came to bring salvation to everybody. You want rest? You want peace? You want true nourishment? Believe in me. Follow me. As Brandon said, this isn't about bagels. This isn't about Wonder Bread. This isn't about any of that. And we can even take passages like this, and I told my wife we can make it about prosperity. We can sit there and say, but look, Pastor Josh, they gave this stuff, and they even had extra left over. All you are called to do as a Christian is to present yourself to God. God. And let him do the rest. Period. You could have five of the nastiest, cheapest loaves of bread and only two fish. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, Go feed them. This imagery still holds true to us today as Christians. Are we going out and are we feeding these sheep without a shepherd? Or do we stop and calculate the costs? Do we stop and debate with ourselves? Do we stop and argue with God and go, well, if I was to do this, it's going to cost me this, and it's going to do this, and... We do this today, do we not? Jesus wants us to know that the greatest way for you and I to serve others and to feed others is to serve Him first is to just simply be available for him. Because as we see here that individuals will come and they will think that Christ was just meant to fulfill some kind of fleshly need that they had, a sense of liberation. That's not the Christ of the Bible. That's not the Christ of our salvation. And I love too, when you read in Matthew's gospel, you guys know the story of Peter, right, walking out to Jesus. He takes the step of faith, and we know what happens later, right? He, he kind of gets a little bit of uh, worked up by seeing what's going on in the storm, and he starts sinking, and he cries out to the Lord to help him. There's a the beautiful imagery in this that we all can take a step of faith, like Peter. But how many, of you, how many of you in here by a show of hands would say that it's hard to continue to walk in faith at times? Jesus took the step, or Peter took the step. But when he had to start walking it, that's when it got a little difficult. That's when the circumstances, his eyes, what he was supposed to be fixated on, who he was supposed to be fixated on, it shifted and it changed. And when he started to realize and recognize everything going on around him, he began to sink. The beauty as well, it says is when Peter began to sink, he cried out to, to Christ. It wasn't that he was submerged, It wasn't that he was necessarily drowning. It was when he began to sink, he knew to cry out. The beauty of it is is when you look at Jesus Christ, Jesus was doing what only Jesus can do. He's still standing on the water. The external circumstances that's going on around him did not sway our Christ or our Lord, and he is the one that we're called to bask in. He is the one that we're called to keep our focus on. That is why I, as your pastor, during these crazy and wild times, will always preach to you to stay focused on Christ. And that might work some people up. People might want me to talk about things that's going on in the news People might want me to give such opinions from the pulpit. I will not do it as a pastor. Why? Because I'm not going to be the person that stands up here one day to tell you guys to keep your eyes focused on Him and, and in the same breath be the other person that tells you to take your eyes off of Him. Guys, there's only one truth and one way and one life, and that's Jesus Christ. And he is laying this out for us today. There's only one way to get peace. There's only one way to feel comfort. And that's Jesus Christ. There's only one way to have your your supplies met. And I don't mean worldly supplies. I mean eternal spiritual needs. And that is Jesus Christ. I told my wife, I said, we could so easily even just sit here and go, well, look, Jesus will always make sure we're taken care of. He'll always make sure our needs are met. I want to say amen to that, but then I stop and go, what about those people that are in third world countries that love Jesus, but they're starving? Or those people that love Jesus and their bodies are dying of disease? Do you think that they're still having their needs met? Amen. Hallelujah. Their needs are being met still. We pray for healing. We pray for all that. We do. We will continue to do that. However, in the eternal scale of things, Jesus has this all wrapped up. And this is the message that he's trying to say. I am the true bread from heaven. I'm not this manna that just falls down that you guys will eat to give you more calories, to function throughout the day. I'm the one that if you partake in and eat from, you'll never go hungry. I'm the true water. If you drink from me, Guess what? You're never going to go thirsty. That means that your earthly lives could be failing and falling, but guess what? You're good. You're good. What a peace to have. This is the message that he's trying to send. These people, their hearts were hardened and they just didn't get it. To carry on in verse 53, when they had crossed over, they landed it. Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. These people knew that where Jesus was, guess what? God was, Yahweh was. My prayers for people today, my wife and I, as we we go through and talk about Christ and we talk about people's love for Jesus, there's this thing that came to my mind yesterday that everybody wants themselves some Jesus until the call for repentance shows up. We have to die to self. We do. There's no other way of putting it. And that might even mean dying to our worldly comforts to follow Christ. The Bible says that. The reason for that is, is that sin has a way of hardening our hearts. Sin has a way of blinding us from following Him in the way that we were called to follow Him. So I'm going to give you guys some time here, as I always do at the end of the sermon, just to reflect over the sermon, repent, pray to the Lord, have this time with you in Christ, I want you guys to just truly trust and know, and there's going to be days where this is difficult to do, but that Christ is truly your portion. He is all that you need in this life and in this world. And even though we are inundated, surrounded by things that are being promoted as wants, even being promoted as needs, they're all lie. Christ is all you need. Period. And our lives are testaments to this because we all have gone through kind of the gambit, the, the, the things of trying different things and, and going different routes and thinking this would bring peace and that would bring peace. But guess what? Peace has always been kept from us.